This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. As part of the 2019 WDET Book Club, we're exploring the Flint water crisis through Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book on the subject, What the Eyes Don't See. While the lead poisoning in Flint continues to devastate the city's residents, there is so much more than poisoned water that's contributed to that city's hardship. Decades of disinvestment for people living there. For nearly 20 years, the city's income from property and income taxes has been decreasing. It's lost a lot of businesses. It's lost a lot of population. And General Motors packing up didn't do anything to help the isolated city either. Here to look a bit deeper into the various factors that played into Flint's current state is someone who thinks a lot about urban policy. Thomas Segrew is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU. He is a specialist in 20th century American politics, urban history, civil rights, and race. He is also the author of The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. Thomas Segrew, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, it's always great to have you here. Um, so um, I, I want to start with uh, a look at um, this idea of Flint and how it connects, how what we saw happen in Flint just a few years ago connects to a pretty uh, sprawling and uh, persistent history in this country of inequality and race. How do you, how do you draw those lines? Well, um, for the last half century plus, um, our cities have borne the weight of America's long history of of racial and economic inequality, race and class kind of reinforcing each other um, in the way that we allocate resources, in the way that we shape public policies, and the way that people live their everyday lives, economically, socially, and politically. And so when you are um, thinking about how race plays a role in these things, talk about how specifically people can, can understand that. I mean, I, I hear from a lot of people uh, this, this uh, defense that, you know, it, it's not race anymore and, and we're past all of those sort of awful structural inequalities, legal inequalities that were baked into the system. Talk about the way that those continue to bear, as you say, on urban uh, uh, centers and the people who live in those urban centers. Oh, yeah. Well, we often think about race uh, in the U.S. as something that uh, exists just in the hearts and minds of ordinary people. Are you a racist? Do you think bad things about people unlike yourself? Um, And that's often a very individualistic, of-the-moment way of thinking about race. But think about metropolitan Detroit and how race uh, shapes the experience of people living in the region. Uh, we have what I would call um, sediment, uh, a long legacy of built-up inequalities that still shape everyday life. And the best example of that is the housing market. Detroit is still one of the most racially segregated metropolitan areas in the United States. And that is a result of decades and decades of official public policies, real estate practices, um, and individual uh, and and family decisions about where to live. Um, 
the result is we have a metropolitan area that has changed. It's better than it was 25 years ago or 30 years ago in terms of racial segregation, but it's still highly segregated. And that determined the access, your access to public goods and resources like education or like good quality water system. Um, it determined your access to the consumer marketplace. It's a lot easier to find high-quality shopping uh, close to where you live in prosperous, um, predominantly white communities than it is in communities of color. It shapes um, your access to um, all sorts of public goods, the streets, the infrastructure, the sewers, um, and it affects how much you pay for it in the form of, form of taxes. Um, there's a huge tax burden, uh, disproportionately so, actually, on um, communities that are the most impoverished. And so all of those are long-term legacies. And it's not just a matter, in other words, of thinking badly about people who aren't like yourself. It's a matter of the way in which racial, racial inequality is baked into our everyday institution. Hmm. And, and so when something like the Flint water crisis happens, uh, we're, we're reminded of those things that you're talking about. We're reminded of uh, that history. But it also strikes me that, that the response to those kinds of things needs to, to sort of account for that history as well. And I, I feel like we're not great at that either, that, that when we are reminded of this inequality and the past inequality uh, that shapes the present, we don't we don't um, we don't act in a way that addresses that. We kind of uh, deal with the instant issue, uh, kind of in a vacuum. Absolutely, um, you know. Think about a place like Flint or Highland Park, where there you know the water problem has been um, uh, surfacing. Um, we're dealing with communities that have suffered decades and decades of disinvestment, of the loss of jobs, uh, the loss of uh, tax paying, uh, tax, a tax base, particularly because of companies moving out and the population getting poorer and smaller. Um, both Flint and, and Highland Park have seen devastating population losses. Um, and uh, the result is that you've got uh, municipalities that simply don't have the resources uh, on their own to deal with the long-term legacies of, you know, an infrastructure that was built 100 years ago that's full of lead in the case of Highland Park, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've got, in other words, uh, a, a need to think more systemically about the causes of and the solutions to um, these pressing urban problems. We can't just think about it in terms of um, individual attitudes. So we can't just think about it in terms of what happened yesterday. We have to think about the fact that this has been building for a very, very long time. Hmm. And in fact, in a July 13th, uh, July 2013 interview with the HuffPost, uh, you said about Detroit, it's been 60 plus years of steady disinvestment, depopulation, and an intensive hostility between the city, the suburbs, and the rest of the state that help explain uh, where we were at, at that point there. I mean, that's another sort of example of uh, modern reflections of that uh, that that history. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Tom Segrew, a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University. We're talking about the connections between our past, our past of 
inequality and racism in this country, and the Flint water crisis, which is the subject of our WDET book club this summer. Uh, we are talking about Mona Hanna Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, uh, what's going on in Flint now, what happened in Flint just a few years ago, and then, of course, how it connects to the past and what it tells us that we about what we ought to be doing in the future. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, tell us what you think of this greater context for the Flint water crisis, uh, for the crises we see in cities like Detroit or Highland Park, uh, the connection between past racism, present inequality, and these kinds of disasters that visit on uh, poor people and uh, people of color. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Also, remember, today at 6 p.m. at the St. Clair, uh, Clair Shores Public Library, we're going to continue our WDET Book Club summer events. Uh, we're going to talk with Detroit Free Press columnist Nancy Kaffer, who wrote uh, an awful lot about the Flint water crisis when it happened. We'll have Elin Batanzo, who's a lifelong friend of Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, with us. Uh, she's also a former EPA worker and a founder of Safe Water Engineering. Uh, and we will also be joined by St. Clair Shores District 8 Director David Fisher. Uh, so we will really love if you would uh, come out and talk more with us about Dr. Uh, Monahanna Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, and uh, the Flint Water Crisis. Uh, Tom, before we get to calls, uh, I want to ask you about um, uh, the, the future and the things that, uh, that you feel uh, that we need to do and the opportunity I guess, to shift the conversation to that. Uh, it does seem to me that uh, as we prepare to elect another president uh, in 2020, uh, it is getting, these kinds of issues seem to be getting a little bit more air than they normally do. Is this uh, a turning point, I guess, in the way that we can talk about these issues? Well, it's, hard for historians to look into our crystal balls and accurately <laughs> predict the future. Right. <laughs> but that said, uh, the here and now, the very fact that um, issues about um, school segregation, issues about reparations, uh, a discussion of uh, the, the long-term effects of, of racial inequality in the United States are on the table, um, to me, is a very heartening sign. Uh, this is a conversation that is long overdue. Um, we had a conversation about race uh, during the Obama years, especially in the first uh, in his first term when he was the first African American president. But a lot of that conversation was, uh, "Wow, we've made a breakthrough. We've entered a post-racial era. The civil rights uh, movement has come to uh, its happy conclusion with the election of a black man to the highest office in the land." And and it took uh, a lot of tragedies, uh, particularly in the 2011, 12, 13, 14, and a lot of protests to begin to put those issues back on the table around Black Lives Matter, around policing, um, but also around um, larger questions of the fact that the economy uh, continues to be better for white Americans than it does for uh, people of color. And so... Um, 
those issues are coming on the table right now, I think, um, in part because of a reaction to uh, the divisive rhetoric of the current administration, but I think also in part because um, a lot of folks on the ground began to put pressure on elected officials and said, these issues matter. Um, it's not just, we can't just wave them away and say that uh, somehow America is post-racial after the election of African-American president. And events in the last decade have made uh, that crystal clear. Yeah. 313-577-1019 uh, is the number on the phones. Let's go to John in Detroit. John, welcome mm -hmm. to Detroit today. Hi, good morning, and, hey. and thank you for allowing me to uh, make my comments. Mm -hmm. I live in Detroit. I lived in Farmington Hills, and um, and I work in Detroit. I'm specifically in the real estate market, so I, I've been here 10, 15 years. The, the divide between the suburbs and the mostly black Detroit area is not necessarily a racial divide. It's an economic divide. And it's an economic divide because primarily of educational differences. In my neighborhood in Farmington Hills, it was, a, it was diversified. Uh, there was a lot of different races um, uh, represented. Uh, Indians, uh, blacks, uh, Latinos. But the thing that they held in common was education. All these people had higher education. Hmm. Now, I hear the liberals, they want to go and they want to preach about racial divide and inequality. But look, the simple matter of the fact is, and it's proven, give somebody an education, they'll get a job, and they can live anywhere they want. And that's what the liberals don't want to admit. Hmm. This is a divide from, not a racial divide, but a divide on economy based on education. Uh, before, yeah. uh, John, before I get to Tom Segrew to, to address your comment, I, I have a, a question. Um, so do you believe that this nation's history then of racial inequality that was specifically about race then has no bearing on on life today or, or opportunity today, that, that the gap between uh, what educational opportunities are available to white citizens and uh, black people um, aren't different because of that history. Uh, you know, I think it's easy to accept what you're saying about education, um, but but difficult to separate that entirely from from the history of race. What what I guess I'm curious what what um, what allows you to do that. What tells you that that it has nothing to do with race. Let's go down that road a second, because I think you've opened up a real, a real opportunity here. Um, yes, there are better educational opportunities for whites because of basically where they live. But let's understand if you have the desire and the ambition. I'll give you a good idea. I'll give two good, um, excellent examples. And this is the neighborhood I grew up in. The one boy... His dad was an alcoholic, lost his job early, and Vic had no way of getting to college. So what he did, he joined the, uh, the Army. Later on, he went and got his education and continued to move up. He didn't have any, didn't have, we come from a poor rural county in Ohio. Vic now 
oversees the experiments. His name is Dr. Vic Cooley. He oversees the experiments on the space lab. My other buddy who grew up in the same neighborhood in a small house, probably 1,000 square feet, well, you know, he worked himself up, too. He wrote letters every day, every day to get a job. A few years ago, he called me, and he says, John, I'm moving back to America. I said, I didn't know where, where you went, Bill. And he says, I've been president of Nissan in Europe, and I'm coming back as president of Nissan in America. My point is, if you have the desire and the ability, it doesn't matter where you grow up. It doesn't matter on your education. But if you have the stick-to-itiveness, you can accomplish anything you want in America, and that's what separates us hmm. from the rest of the world. We don't look in hindsight. I didn't own slaves. Christ, my people came over here. My kids will be the first generation never to have worked in a coal mine. Hmm. Uh, John, I really appreciate uh, the call and the perspective. Uh, I can't say I agree, uh, but but I really do appreciate uh, you sharing that with me and, and the listeners. Uh, Tom Segrew, uh, I'll let you have an opportunity to respond to what John's talking about here. Well, um, there are... There are a lot. There are a lot of things to talk about in uh, John's questions, mm-hmm. but um, I think I want to stick at least for the moment to the relationship of race and education because mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, I agree with John that education is essential uh, for people's advancement in economic insecurity, and uh, metropolitan Detroit is a really good example of the ways in which um, public education has failed a lot of people, um, but it's not failed a lot of people exactly in the same ways. We've set up a public education system in terms of funding, um, in terms of resources, in terms of the infrastructure of schools, um, and John suggested this in his comments, right? Where you live, to a great extent, determines the quality of the education that you get. Uh, it determines how well your schools are funded. It determines how big your classrooms are. It determines how good your teachers are. What we've done in Michigan and in America writ large is we've created a really perverse form of public policy around education where we take the kids with the most disadvantages um, and maybe with the most to gain from uh, a good education system. And we've concentrated them all in the school districts um, that have struggled with older buildings, with underpaid teachers, with uh, uh, all sorts of problems. And then we've taken the kids who come with lots of advantages. People like me, I I grew up in Farmington Hills, too, for part of my uh, childhood. We take people with a lot of advantages, and we put them together in communities where the schools exist to um, enhance their advantages, to make them even more advantaged. Um, I was super lucky in the chance of my birth that I was white and that my parents had the resources to move to a place like Farmington and to get me a really good education. Uh, And it's in part because I'm smart, of course. But it's also in part because I grew up with an extraordinarily fortunate set of socioeconomic circumstances. And those were as much luck and chance as they were um, discipline and hard work. Um, And luck and chance is not the story for many kids going to school um, in a place like Detroit. It's a matter of long-term public policies that have really disadvantaged those schools in ways that continue to have profoundly negative consequences for people's life opportunities, for how much they get paid, for what kind of jobs they can find, um, for their opportunities in higher education, and so forth. Some individuals can overcome those obstacles, but most uh, have to fight hard against the system. We ask, we're asking for heroism on the part of kids growing up in disadvantage 
uh, and we're asking kids who grew up in advantage just to continue uh, moving forward in a, in a life that's probably going to be pretty good for them as a result of the accident at their birth. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, again, John, I really do appreciate the call and your candor uh, about your point of view, even if uh, even if I don't agree, I think uh, it's important that we hear from people who see things the way uh, that you do. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We've got a lot of folks queued up to participate in this conversation. Let's go next to Anna in Detroit. Anna, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to respond to John. Um, I'm also a white person, and uh, I also have higher education, and I have, therefore, um, a lot of choice in where I live and where I work. Um, my issue that I take with John's perspective is that if we assume that race has had nothing to do with the uh, current economic divide, then there's an insinuation about the very nature of um, people of color, of oppressed minorities, that they inherently just don't want to succeed or um, that they've been given all these same opportunities but have just decided that they'd rather live in poverty. And I honestly find that um, really difficult to believe. Hmm. Yeah, uh, and I really appreciate uh, that perspective as well. Uh, Thomas Agrew, one of the things that John was was talking about is this idea that, um, you know, people who want to succeed can. And, and, and that is there's something very American uh, about that, uh, about that idea that that people who want to get to a better place just have to work hard to get there. Uh, but I, there, there is something about that notion that, of course, ignores history. It ignores wh- how we got to the place where we are now, where things are so unequal. Uh, and it does lend uh, it lends credence, I guess, to this idea that maybe some people haven't uh, haven't done as much as they should if if you try to ignore that history. I mean, it's it, it's an easy trap, I think, to fall into. Yeah, I mean, what what I would say is that one way of thinking about this issue of um, mobility, upward mobility, and opportunity and equality is to look at um, countries in the world that have higher rates of upward mobility in the United States. And we have a myth that everyone can make it in the United States and go up. But actually, rates of mobility are quite low in the United States compared to um, a lot of countries in Western Europe, for example. Um, And that has to do with the fact that we don't provide a lot of the support systems that are um, helpful, um, even necessary, uh, for socioeconomic advancement. Uh, And uh, when you look at, say, Scandinavian countries or... Um, Germany, uh, just or France, just to name a few examples, um, rates of inequality are lower, um, and and uh, rates of social mobility are uh, about the same or higher than they are in the United States. Why is that? Because they've got a whole web of social services and support, uh, free public education, uh, 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 universities that have little or no tuition, um, a healthcare system that's beneficial to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people's uh, well-being that makes it more possible for them to hang on to jobs rather than to deal with costly and chronic health problems themselves or their families. I could go on, but suffice it to say, um, upward mobility is not just a matter of individual gumption and initiative. It's a matter of the kinds of social supports that we have. Mm-hmm. And we have to think in the U.S. more about providing social supports for uh, for folks and not just assume that if they don't make it, it's, it's, it's a result of a lack of initiative. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Thomas Sagru, and we're going to get to more of your calls. Tim in Detroit, Ryan on the east side, Mike in Berkeley. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Thomas Sagru. He's a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU. Uh, he's a specialist in 20th century American politics, urban history, civil rights, and race. We're talking about uh, the history of inequality and race in this country and how it comes to bear on things like the Flint water crisis, which is the subject of our WDET book club this summer. We are reading Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, and talking about the many issues that spring from that book. Of course, today you can join us at 6 p.m. at St. Clair Shores Public Library for a continuation of that uh, discussion in person. Our next event uh, is there tonight at 6 p.m. We're going to be joined by a number of people uh, who've written and thought a lot about the, the Flint water crisis. Right now, you can join us on the phones at uh, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work those comments into the conversation. Let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Tim in Detroit, uh, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Let me see if I get these quick points in. To uh, uh, John's point, he doesn't understand why black folks don't do better. You know, they've done studies that show that a white person with a high school education will get a job faster than a black man with a uh, master's degree. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, for the last two weeks, I've been watching the space program on TV, and I, I didn't see not one black face on the t- entire two weeks with the space program. Despite the fact that we had black engineers and the movie True Story showed there was a black woman that saved that program. But what I really call to ask is, why do white people take the reparations issue so personally when it's really against the government that gave them all of the advantages? Hmm. Can you answer that, uh, Tom Shigrew? It's an interesting question, Tim. I, I appreciate the call. Tom, uh, go ahead. Um, I, I think it has to do with a, a fundamental unwillingness to confront the legacies of the past, uh, an unwillingness to um, deal with the um, really, for some people, painful reality that their advantages aren't just the result of their own hard work, but because of um, who, who they were uh, born to and where they were born. Um, I, I think about this all the time. Um, my parents had a house in Detroit and moved to Farmington, um, and uh, and as a consequence of their buying a house in a community that was still redlined in terms of racial segregation that was overwhelmingly white at the time, um, their house depreciated really significantly in value. That value gets passed down. It did get passed down eventually to me and my sisters in the form of inheritance of wealth. Um, the wealth gap between African Americans and whites in the United States is enormous. African Americans have 
roughly 5% of the household wealth of white Americans, um, a gap that's been pretty persistent over time. Um, the result of that is um, I, I, I was born into advantage right from the get-go as a result of segregated housing policies that gave my parents the opportunity to move and didn't give African-Americans the same opportunities. We think about housing as a free market. There's nothing free about it historically, and it's still relatively unfree um, uh, compared to how it should be. And as a result, um, I have advantages that just came to me as a consequence of, uh, of the fact that I was born into a segregated society. We have to name that. We have to confront it. And we have to think about creative policies uh, to try to overcome it. Uh, Tim, thanks very much for the call and the question. We've got kind of a related question uh, from Tom in Gross Point. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program, uh, and go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Yeah, I, I, I want to kind of preface my comments with, you know, I acknowledge our history. Uh, it's beyond egregious, um, and I don't, I don't deny it. I don't deny it, but... It, it feels like many of the conversations we have around injustices and inequities uh, lacks the topic of personal responsibility. And uh, to me, that's the force multiplier, uh, regardless of race. And I'd like to hear, you know, I, all I hear about is, yeah, we've got to change funding models. We've got to create social problems. Uh, uh, social programs, but what about personal responsibility? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, great question, uh, Tom. Uh, Tom Segaru, uh, what is the role of personal responsibility in all of this? That's an excellent question. Um, I would say um, those of us who um, live in positions of advantage, um, as I do, I can't speak to, to the caller, uh, have personal responsibility to try to um, put into place public policies that address those problems. Most of us dodge at personal responsibility. We think about um, politics in terms of our own self-interest and the interest of our own communities or our own families. And I think we have to broaden, widen the circle of we, of who we think we are responsible to. And in the United States, we have a pretty narrow understanding of, um, of, of that. Most of us I would say a lion's share of Americans tend to think about my responsibilities primarily to my self-interest or to my family's interest. That's fine. That's important. We do need to care about those. But we also have to widen our circle to think about the ways in which um, living where we live and, and having the advantages that we have confer on us a special responsibility to help those who don't have those advantages. So for me, personal responsibility is taking a stand on these questions of inequality and working for public policies that help to undo um, generations, centuries uh, of uh, policies that have been profoundly negative in their application. Hmm. Uh, Tom, again, thanks very much for the call and the question. Uh, let's go to Harriet in Detroit. Harriet, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Tom Lowe. It's been a long time. I have taught from Thomas the Gru's book for many years. I have recently had a good discussion on Mona's book as well. Hmm. What the mind doesn't want to see 
than the eyes can't see. And if we don't recognize the issues of institutional racism, it's not personal discrimination, although that occurs as well. If we don't see the long history and the short history of the lack of transportation and the class issues that have made our schools so bad, then we blame the individual for not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. That's not the issue. Individuals can succeed, maybe, but the groups can't succeed without major changes in our own things. Mm. And basically the question of our minds have to see that and recognize it, then our eyes will see what's wrong. Mm. And perhaps, Tom, you can talk about the two things you might like to see us do that would take us further. Uh, Harriet, I appreciate uh, that perspective. Thanks very much. Uh, Tom Segrul, uh, we've got about a minute Great left. Question. You'll get the, You'll get the last word here. Great question. I'll be really fast on okay. it, which is um, one of the ways in which that, what you call institutional or structural racism plays out is in the lack of economic opportunities. Um, this affects every aspect of life. Do you have a decent job? Does it have good pay? Does it provide you with good benefits and security? And the reality is, especially for working class people of all colors, but especially uh, of African Americans and Latinos in the United States, Jobs don't provide that kind of security, and we need to think about policies that address that, and especially address the ways in which, historically and contemporarily, um, people of color have borne the heaviest burden of the weak job market. And that's definitely uh, true in Detroit from the 1950s to the present. Hmm. Okay, Thomas Segru, Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis and History at NYU. It is always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Stephen. It's always great being on your show. Mm -hmm. All right. Remember, tonight at 6 at the St. Clair Shores Public Library, join us for our continuing conversation about Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.